Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. 200 years ago, for most people in the West, China was like another planet. Nobody could go there except for very limited numbers of diplomats and merchants. And because all of the normal, the things that we take for granted, methods of communication uh, didn't exist yet, it was very hard to find out much about China or know much about China from the West. That didn't mean that China wasn't very present in the West in lots of ways. So because of the trade with China that had been going on for some hundreds of years by then, since around the year 1600, there were many Chinese artifacts, especially used by the upper classes in in Europe. So there would be fine Chinese wallpaper, China, of course, the, the, the porcelain products, and especially tea, the, the commodity tea, which became very, very important, uh, important commodity in, in, in Western Europe, and I guess particularly in England in, in, in the 18th century. And that led to there being quite a lot of money circulating around <laughs> between the West and China, in those days and with money comes interest right with profit comes interest and people people in the west wanted to know more about china so they could maybe make some profit from it and likewise chinese people were interested in the west in a different way chinese people weren't allowed to travel to the west in that era for the very most part but still there was a significant economy in china that depended on on western uh, on western trade it's easy to find evidence about what people thought about what China looked like because there was Chinese objects in people's houses like a teacup or wallpaper I mean not everybody's houses in the houses of the elite but there were there was an in the imagination of people who were interested you could think about what China looked like maybe a pagoda you know like a tower Uh, there's a pagoda in Kew Gardens here in England in, in London that was actually brought to England around this time and people could see that and say, that's what China looks like. But nobody knew what China sounded like, except for very few Westerners who traveled to China and bothered to write down what they heard. And so that was the point of departure for me, was to take this writing about, about China and about Chinese sounds and try to turn that into a, a way to explain what was going on a little bit between China and the West in that era. Because sound couldn't be recorded. The only way to find out, find out about how China sounded was to read words about that. And so for me, uh, I needed to collect, as a historian, I needed to collect a library, an archive of Western writing about Chinese sounds. And that at first seemed rather difficult because it was hard to find things. But what I I have to say I was very, very much helped by um, modern technology, today's modern technology to do that, because right about the time I started working on this book, most 18th and 19th century books that are out of copyright were put onto the internet on sites like Google Books or archive.org. And all I had to do was search them for the word sound or gong or canon or noise or something like that. And then I, I, I suddenly became, uh, I suddenly acquired much more material that I actually could work with. It was a very strange experience as a historian suddenly to be, it was like the room was filling up with, with documents about sound 
So that that made it very that made it simpler. And then because of my access to those kinds of things, I then found some uh, other kinds of materials, ear witnesses, and I got interested in particular people. So in the book, I described the listening experiences of various Westerners who spent time in China, either as diplomats or as merchants. And so just to pick out a couple example ear witnesses from the book, there is one man, a German man named Johann Christian Hutner or John Christian Hutner, who worked in England as a private tutor to a wealthy aristocrat. And because he was a man of, of learning and he was quite young and he knew the right people, he was brought along on a diplomatic mission to China uh, as the tutor to a child, to the child, the son of one of the senior diplomats. And he turned out to be a remarkably good listener, John Christian Hutner did. And I was able to use his materials. He, he actually wrote a book about his visit to China. It was the first book that came out describing that mission in the 1790s. And he actually managed to send the manuscript back while still en route. So it was the first one published. He beat all the other ones. And I was able to, uh, I was, it was a hard book to find, but I did find it in the end. And I was able to use his ears as one example of a way of listening. And because he was a quite musical man, he had interesting things to say. He didn't like everything he heard in China, but he didn't dislike it either. So he found some Chinese opera, for instance, he found very interesting. Like he, he said, I, I don't understand the words, but I can follow this. And why is that happening? And so he was very excited about that. And he was very interested in the sounds that the, that the workers were making, the, 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 the oarsmen who were towing their canal boats from the coast up to Beijing. He, he was very interested in the, in the music that they were singing and he wrote it down and sent it, included in, in his book. So that's one kind of listener. He was quite positive about the way China sounded. And another kind of listener would be his colleague on that same embassy, uh, the McCartney embassy, a man named John Barrow, uh, who later became quite famous as an early British colonial official in South Africa. But at that time he was relatively young and he was, he was a functionary, a bureaucrat on this, on this trip. And he hated the way China sounded. And then, so in his memoirs, he wrote about so very noisy and I hated the music and it was very discordant and, and I, wished, you know, I wish it would stop. And so I started to work with why, why you had these two different perspectives. And I, I, I guess I began to draw this sort of ear witnessing into a larger historical story, which I think I'll, I'll come, on to, come on to in a minute. One chapter of the book describes the sonic experience of the McCartney embassy and so the listening experiences of Hutner and Barrow and their boss, Cartney, who left also some interesting, who left the diaries, interesting reflections on the way China sounded. And another chapter of the book is about the experiences of Westerners who were working in Canton, which is today called Guangzhou, which is the city in the south coast of China, where the trade took place. So that's where Westerners and Chinese people were allowed to meet and interact with each other under the control of the Chinese authorities. And that was a very useful case study because it was kind of encompassed by it's a small geographical area. And then I could use, uh, and a lot of people wrote memoirs about, oh, you know, when I was young in the, in the China trade, and you can go through those books and find out what they were listening to, right? And so I heard, uh, I heard, sorry, I, I worked with I worked with documents about listening from Canton in that era. And you began to see a kind of change in the way Westerners listened to China. I should say here, by the way, that 
there's nothing in my book about the way Chinese people listen to the West. That would be very interesting, but that's not, that was beyond my, it's beyond my linguistic capacity. And I'm very, in the book, I, I, I hope I'm sufficiently clear about, about the limits of what I'm doing. It would be a wonderful story to, to run it the other way. And I, I really hope someone does. The, the change in listening would, was something like in the beginning of the period I'm talking about, when China and the West were equal economic partners, more or less. Or you could even say China had the upper hand because China controlled the trade, right? China, China every time a ship arrived in, in Canton, it had to be measured. And this measurement ceremony was a sort of a symbol of the Chinese control over the trade. And it was also really loud. It's interesting kind of musical experience, right? Because both sides would bring a band. I mean, it's kind of imagine like a trade negotiation at the WTO today, but both sides show up with like a big formal, you know, military bands, everybody's walking around. That's what that was happening every time a ship came, or every time, but most of the time that a ship came into, into the harbor there. And in the early era, I, I, I get a sense that the, the listeners were more open to what China had to offer. They were curious about what they heard. They were interested. They weren't put off by it. And then slowly through the era, through the period, you get more and more ear witnesses. So there's one, a doctor with a fantastic name. Uh, his name is Too Good Downing. Like his first name is Too Good, which I think is a great name. He, he wrote all about Chinese noise. He was in Canton for a couple of months as, a, as an East India Company doctor. And he wrote all about Chinese noise. And he was very irritated by it. Like it kept him up at night. The sound of bells or the sound of, of, of theater productions. Also, good thing to remember, we're talking about 1800 here. So... There's not all this noise from from highways or airports or the, the decibel, the general background decibel level was much lower. So you could imagine being in Guangzhou in 1800 and listening, sitting on a ship and being able to hear two miles away somebody singing uh, in, a, in a theater production. You wouldn't, that wouldn't be possible today. Anyway, so too good Downing, he really disliked the, the way, the way that China sounded. and he he comes to sort of symbolize for me a kind of closing of ears to china that happened because of changes in the economic relationship and the geopolitical relationship between the two between the two countries so the 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 taxation ceremonies i was just speaking about those those were those were when the the, the chinese authorities came out to measure the ships and as I said, those, those official sonic interactions were places where both sides kind of showed using sounds like cannon salutes. So cannon salutes is a very uh, European way of showing respect for, for your person you're meeting or other powers. So the more cannons you fire, right? The, so I think the queen gets, uh, I forget how many guns she gets on her birthday. The president of the United States gets a 21 gun salute. Th those are all remnants of that way of thinking. And that was very carefully regulated. And so the taxation ceremonies seem to involve a lot of this sort of, on the one hand, the British are firing off all these cannons. And on the other hand, the Chinese bring a really loud band. And this is kind of like, a, one day I'd love to make a kind of artistic piece of these, you know, this, this, this uh, ma mashup, a mashup of these, of these two sound worlds. Later, just to skip to the very end of the period, sound becomes a weapon on the side of the Chinese to, to, to try to fight back against the British. So what happened to the relationship is that because the British were selling drugs in China, opium, they were selling drugs in China in order to raise cash 
to buy the tea <laughs> to bring it back. So they were trying to stop a kind of loss of silver from the West to China. And so one of the ways that this ended up being fixed, this problem, and I say fixed very carefully because it's a terrible way they did it, which was, which was to import opium into China from India and sell it. And so relations broke down over this because the, the British side demanded that the Chinese stop trying to control the sale of, the sale of drugs in, in China using words like free trade. And the Chinese weren't having that, first of all, because it was causing really enormous social problems, like people were getting addicted. And second, because it was a terrible violation of their sovereignty as a country. So instead of having these sort of like ceremonies where everybody's showing each other in sound how much they respect the other's sovereignty, you got situations where at the end of the period, the British ambassador who was sent to, to sort this out, a man named Lord Napier, uh, the Chinese wouldn't deal with him because they, were they, they weren't going to negotiate with somebody at the point of a gun, which is what was sort of happening. And... They sent Napier to Macau, which is a Portuguese enclave near, near Guangzhou. And he fell ill. And when his, uh, they, they stopped his barge from moving down the river to Macau and surrounded it by people banging on pots and, and, and making terribly loud noises in, a, in an attempt to intimidate him. He later died a few days later. I don't know if he died of the noise, but, but the, 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 that story symbolizes for me the breakdown in Sino-Western relations. Um, and again, it's not, sound is just another piece of evidence, another tool to use in storytelling, but I thought that would be an interesting way to try and explain or understand this story. So that's another really important part of the book. So I talk about the ear witnessing in one section of the book or one strand, they kind of alternate. And then I talk about Europeans who never went to China, but wrote a lot about what China sounded like. And these are mostly music writers, people who are writing about music and what music is or the history of music. One of the main characters is a man named Charles Burney, who is now famous mostly because his daughter, Frances Burney, Fanny Burney, was a famous author, sort of of the generation before Jane Austen. But Charles Burney, uh, those of us in music history know him because he was the founder of writing music history in English. And he set out to write a global world history of music when he was a young man, which he never finished. But at the very end of his life, he tried to write a kind of account of Chinese music. And it sort of sums up a lot of ideas that had been coursing around in those decades from when he was a young man, when people thought Chinese music might be really quite interesting and there might be a universal connection between the way Chinese theater works, for instance, because Chinese theater and European theater sound really different, but they both seem to be about harmony and drama and the tension between harmony and drama. People were writing about that at a very high level in, in the 1770s. And then at the end of his life, which was in the 1800, the first decade of the 19th century, Bernie sits down to write this article about China and he has all this material including some of the material that I have. So he's has, he was friends with this guy, Hutner. That's sort of where the connection is. And he was friends with the ambassador who went in, 19, in 1792. He was friends with Lord McCartney. He even sent Lord McCartney a list of questions to ask about Chinese music. So he was developing his own idea 
of, of what Chinese music is. And in the end, he concludes that Chinese music, unfortunately, is sort of stuck in the past and can't progress. And he's got a lot of technical reasons for that, mostly that Chinese music doesn't have, usually doesn't have more than one voice at a time. And so he felt like, he felt like that's a sign that China is sort of historically stuck and not progressing. And that's a very common opinion that people had about China in all fields in those decades. And I think it's pretty clear that that, that idea is related to the breakup, the breakdown of the relationships in, in, in the political and economic spheres. That kind of attitude about like dynamism, you, 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 you meet that today still as a, as a form of anti-Chinese prejudice that the, the people say, to, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's actually, it's racism is what it is. And people say, well, the, the Chinese are, you know, they don't have their own, they need Western creativity or they need something. And, the, and it's, actually, it's actually interesting to observe that sometimes you see that kind of thinking in Chinese writing today about music. So they'll say, well, we didn't have, China never had Beethoven. That's why we were conquered by the West in the 20th century. And it's, it seems to me like they've taken on this, this attitude that was already already there before. I think there's two things that I would, I, I hope I've contributed with this book. I mean, the first thing is I've done an investigation of how the West defined itself musically against China, right? So all this listening by Westerners is also about being Western. And if you can read that, I'm interested in, I was interested in reading that in a certain way to find out more about things that we take for granted, like Western classical music. And we take for granted, for instance, that Western classical music is universal, right? So you can say, people say, oh, Beethoven is, is, a, is a composer for everybody. And that might not be true. And that certainly wasn't true in, in 1800 when you had a situation where the West and the Chinese, they had their own musics, but they didn't exchange them, right? Nobody, in my book, I describe how Ambassador McCartney brought a band to China and he played Western music for Chinese intellectuals, officials, court composers, all these people came to listen and none of them showed any interest at all in Western music. So I was interested about where this idea of universalism comes from and I think it, I'm sad to say, or I think it's a sobering lesson, it comes from the way the West set itself up as, a, as an imperial power in China and in the rest of the world in those decades. So that's one, one message I, I, I hope is coming through from the book. And the other one is more, I'm a t I teach music history, I'm a teacher, I'm a, a, I, I, I train young people to think about history and I wish for them a more global approach to history than I had because I was taught in exclusively Western idioms. I didn't hear Chinese music until I was long past my higher education training. Uh, when I was a PhD student, I never was offered any opportunities to study non-Western music. And I feel like it's, it's what we need uh, in music history, which is my job. We need, to, we need to think more globally. We need to move the frames outwards. We need to make things bigger so that we can tell, tell different stories and, and to use some sort of like terminology from global history so that we can, be, uh, we can pay attention to different perspectives. And then we can think about different processes like how process works in history and like the Sino-Western economic relationship, that's a process and it has an impact on listening perspectives. 
And I thought that would be an interesting way to bring my field of musicology, which is sort of small, into, into bigger conversations. So those are the two things that I think that I hope the book is doing.